0: My goodness, what a blessing to worship with brothers and sisters in Christ, singing together the truths of God's word. Same mind and heart that gave us that wonderful hymn, Amazing Grace, how sweet the sound that saved a wretch like me, gave us that same text we just sang, John Newton, come my soul with every care. Jesus longs to answer prayer. Let's do that right now, shall we? Father, we we come to you in this moment. We thank you and we praise you for the wonderful promises of your word. So beautifully captured in song. What a blessing it has been to the church through the ages to sing of your majesty, your goodness, your grace. Your mercy, your kindness. Father, as our souls have been refreshed even this morning, we come now to your word. We thank you that it is the bread that feeds our hungry souls, it is the water that nourishes. Father, even as we are reminded by the prophet, as the rain falls, as the snow comes, so too your word. It will nourish. It will accomplish its work. And so, Lord, we ask that this morning that you would do that, that your word in our hearts in this moment, it would accomplish what you have for it to do in us. Oh, Father, we ask these things. In the name of Jesus Christ, our risen Savior, amen. We, uh, As I was praying, that that verse from Isaiah came to my mind, the rain and the snow, and we're having both of those this morning, (laughs) and it really is a beautiful picture of what God's Word does, because sometimes the rain falls, and it's a rather immediate nourishment right into the soil, and sometimes the snow falls up on the mountain peaks, and it may be months before it melts and runs down and nourishes the valley. Whatever the case may be, so too is his word. It will accomplish the purpose whereunto it is set. Whether it is immediate or whether it is in the long term, God's word is always honored and it is always true. This morning, we're going to start kind of a four-week mini-series inside of this series of the study of Romans. Um, I've kind of titled it The Christian And... Because what we see in these next several verses, right on down through the beginning of chapter 13, Paul begins to articulate to the early church how they are, how early Christians are to relate to all the other people around them, all the others that they encounter in their lives. We see here he'll begin with Uh, with relating to the family of believers. We're going to see that this morning, verses 9 through 13. Then he's going to move to how the Christian is to relate to those in the community at large. And we see that in verses 14, 15, and 16. And then he puts his focus on how the Christian relates to those who may be an enemy or even antagonistic towards the faith. Then he lastly, he addresses the matter of the Christian relating to government in the beginning verses of chapter 13. I think we can all agree that the truth before us is quite timely. (laughs) Truth is always timely. It should also be noted that the instruction here in these verses is very clearly and pointedly directed to believers. There is no expectation or exhortation to the other parties. He's talking to us. He's talking to a believer. If you know Jesus Christ as your Savior, He's talking to you. He is not going to tell the community at large to be nicer to you. He's not going to tell your enemies to quit talking bad about you. He's not going to tell the government to. No, He's talking to us, to believers. So many times we would like to flip it around, use it as an excuse. Well, if they would, then I could. Remember the context in which this is written. In the first century, persecution is beginning to come. It had not certainly reached its apex yet, but but it was headed that way. It would not be very many years and Paul himself would be bound and sent to Rome courtesy of the government. He would ultimately be imprisoned twice, and then sometime probably in the mid to late 60s, he would die a martyr's death. But notice, if you will, as we look at these verses, let me read them for you, and then we'll just jump right into verses 9 because we do have a, a ways to go. Romans 12, beginning here in verse 9, he says, Contribute to the needs of the saints and seek to show hospitality. Paul starts in verse 9 with a very general statement. Verse 9, he says, Let love be genuine, abhor what's evil, hold fast to what is good. This is the broadest sense possible of saying how we should live our Christian life. Let our love for God, for fellow believers, even for our fellow mankind, be genuine. Not hypocritical, not saying, well, I'll love them and then they'll maybe give something to me. No, it's a self-sacrificial love. It is that agape kind of love that just gives no matter if anything is given in return. And then he says, Abhor what's evil, hold fast to what's good. Immediately, again, obviously confronting that sinful flesh that is still there, that that still wars, and he's already talked about it and has been somewhat of his own testimony. Wouldn't it be nice? Wouldn't it be nice if such a statement would suffice? And we would get it and go, got it, okay, I'm good. That's the Christian life. I can do that. (laughs) Sinful nature, though, fights. It makes it nearly impossible, or at least not the reality with which most of us are familiar. Following Paul's admonition to love without hypocrisy, he then moves on to the responsibilities that believers have to one another. There are, in this passage, ten commands to believers. Paul likes to make lists. Maybe that's where Baptist preachers get it from. I don't know. But he does. He just gave us a list of seven gifts. Now he's giving us 10 commands. I figured if I got seven last week, I could probably do 10. We'll just see how, you know, how this goes. 1 Thessalonians 5, he's got that list. Very familiar. A lot of these are repeated. A lot of these themes are repeated throughout the New Testament. Because again, you know, this letter was sent to Rome. Ultimately, it would be collected, they would be compiled, they would be circulated, but that would be a while. You know, there's letters to the church of Philippi and to Ephesus and to Thessalonica and so on and so forth, and and all these letters are spread out there, and you will see the same themes in many and a lot of crossover. This morning, we're going to work our way through these 10 commands. Have you ever had a time in your home when you had to kind of refresh what you knew to be right and and true in everybody's mind, kind of like hitting the reset button. Occasionally, we need to be reminded that we are brothers and sisters in Christ. The Holy Spirit drives home this truth repeatedly in the New Testament because the church is likened to a household, the household of faith. That analogy holds. One of the blessings of preaching as we do here, expositionally, just right on through, this is the next group of verses. There's no agenda here. You know, I didn't go run to this text because, oh, there's a difficulty and we got to fix it. (laughs) It's just the next set of verses. If something needs to be fixed in your heart today, take it up with the Holy Spirit. But this is just the next set of verses. But I trust it will encourage us. I trust it will exhort us. It certainly has me in my own life as I have refreshed my study on it. What Paul is really emphasizing here is the conduct and the relationship among believers within a local congregation, because as we'll look, as we work our way quickly through this whole list, this is very, very specific. There are some of these things, it's really not even feasible to do to the church at large, the church universal, the church global. It's obvious it is meant locally. And so you look around the room on any given Sunday morning, and you're like, how can I live these things out? Those of you online, it's right here. The, can I live these things out? To my brothers and sisters in Christ at Farmington Avenue Baptist Church that I worship with every Sunday. What's that look like? How's that going to be? So he instructs us. He gets down, as it were, to, you know, as the saying goes, the brass tacks of the Christian life. It can be too easy, understandably, to read through the list without really grasping what's intended. And I, again, I could have broken this up. I did in years gone by, quite frankly, into four. But other passages mention this list too. And, you know, I, the thought came to me as, as I was thinking about this because the church at Rome, when they first got this letter, it's, it's logical, it's probable. They really hadn't seen anything else, none of the other letters yet. Um, they had some people there in their in their gathering that had traveled with Paul. Maybe they had read some of the other letters that he had written or were aware of them. But as far as like what we have today, you know, compiled, uh, you know, the codex, as they would call, of, of the gathering and putting them in like in a book, that certainly had not occurred. And so I thought, you know, when, when the church at Rome got this letter, what did they do? They read it, then they read it again, then they read it again, then they read it again. I mean, there's a lot here, right? But I thought, you know, I wonder, this is pure conjecture, okay? don't go looking for a proof text but i wonder if maybe they didn't when they came to passage like what is here in front of us that maybe whoever was leading it there at the church of rome at the time if they didn't begin to work down through this list and maybe that you know what next week we're going to come together and we're just going to talk about how do we love one another with brotherly kindness let's just talk about it. let's just drill down on that because they weren't going Take your Bibles and turn to and look over here at first. They didn't have that. It's not how it was yet. But there's enough here. They understood the language, they understood what was meant. And I do fear sometimes, and just because of how our society is, how you know time crunches in upon us, that, that a lot of times we look at this list and we're like, okay, I read down through that. Good, let's go on to the next but we need to kind of pump the brakes a little bit. So just, just walk with me through these this morning. Love one another with brotherly affection. Now, he's, he's already talked about love in verse 9, but that was a different word. Now he employs the word phileo. All right, so he's, he's shifted gears. This is the overarching, but now this is incredibly practical. Now we should have agape love to one another too. But I mean this is like really lived out on on the basic levels. Literally to be devoted to one another, cherishing one's family. One of the identifying marks of the world of your to the world of your faith should be the love that you have for other believers. It's not an option for us if we are to be obedient to the scriptures. That's why John wrote, as it was read for us already, quoting Jesus. John records it, and then later on at the close of the first century, John echoes that, gives it to a whole other generation. In 1 John 4, he says, If a man say I love God and hates his brother, he's a liar. He says, In this commandment we have from him, from who? From Jesus, that he, that, that he who loves God love his brother also. John, the final living apostle, reaches all the way back to that night in the upper room and grabs what Jesus had told them. And he brings it over and plants it squarely in the New Testament church to a whole new generation as the first century is coming to a close. Adam Clark writes about William Penn, most of you know this, this is just an interesting way to to put it, said, when William Penn, of deservedly famous uh, memory, made a treaty with the Indians in North America and purchased for them a large woody tract, which, after its own nature and his name, he called Pennsylvania, he built a city on it and peopled it with Christians of his own denomination and called the city Philadelphia, the city of brotherly love. As with a natural family, it is often the babies that are, that are given the most care and treated with the greatest tenderness. Why do we lose that devotion to one another as we grow older? Wills begin to be demonstrated. The newness wears off. Babies are dependent on their family members for everything. They can't hold even up their own head or roll over on their own. The challenge is to keep the love that it, that's exhibited to a new baby even as the family member grows and matures. That's why the writer of Hebrews says, let brotherly love continue. Because it's really easy for us when someone comes into the fellowship anew or comes to faith anew, We just run and wrap our arms around them. We're so excited. And then those people that have been there for a long time, we just look at them and go, grow up. What's the matter with you? Let brotherly love continue. And so he says, love one another with brotherly affection. It doesn't take long for us, right, for the newness to wear off. If you've ever bought a new car, that new car smell, there's a reason they put it in a can and you can spray it because it doesn't last very long. So, so too with us and our relationships, we need the reminder. And not only should our faith be evidenced by the fellow love that we have for one another in our hearts, but also that love is demonstrated outwardly in preference to one another. He doesn't just say, love one another with brother Klein. Then he says, and here's what it's going to look like, show honor. Out, I, I love how ESV translates it, outdo one another in showing honor. Now, I get our our flesh immediately goes, competition. <laughs> if we keep it all in balance and keep it all in check the holy spirit will help us do that but understand literally he says put others first put them into the lead honor others by putting them first and this second clause explains and illustrates the first just like it did in verse 9 if if we if we love if our love is genuine we will abhor what's evil and cling to what is good if we are in fact loving one another with brotherly affection we will show honor, and prefer one another. The struggle's real though, isn't it? The struggle was real among the 12. They're on their way to Jerusalem to celebrate what would be the final Passover before the crucifixion. They're headed to where they would gather in the upper room, and all the while they're back there bickering about who's going to be greatest in the kingdom. Luke's gospel records it for us in Luke 22. And it's very easy for us to look at them and go, oh, my goodness, what in the world, you guys, did you not? No, they didn't. And you know what? They could look right back at us and go, oh, my goodness, guys, what in the world? How is this ever going to be demonstrated within a local assembly of believers? Well, he's already given us a hint back in verse 3. It's humility. Not to think of himself, he says, more highly than he ought to think. Now, you know, I, I could start fabricating, and you could too, a list of how we actually could do this. But as as I was thinking about this this week, okay, let's just take a Sunday morning. A Sunday morning, it begins in your homes. You get in the car, you arrive here at church. How do you, from the time you arrive on the church property, come in the building before the service maybe even begins? I love people arriving early and the fellowship that happens beforehand. And of course, that afterwards as well. That's that's just part of, of the benefits of the body. But from the time we come together, the moment we get on property, how do we think, how can I show honor to somebody else today? This isn't about well, this is the way I like to do it. Or even this is the way I think it ought to be done. <laughs> but how do we do that from the from the way we you know, communicate the way we walk through the building, the the, the way we, we worship and sing together, all the way through. How do we take a backseat to others? Literally consider all your brethren as more worthy than yourself. Like I said, these themes are repeated. Paul Writes to another church, It writes to the church at Philippi in Philippians 2, 3, it says, let nothing be done through strife or vainglory, but in lowliness, humility of mind, let each person, each esteem, place a value upon others better than themselves. It's the same thought, it's the same theme. The world isn't interested in conferring honor as obtaining honor. But as believers, again, we ought to turn that around. John's going to have to deal with this, and he calls it out very, very clearly. In 3 John, verse 9, there's a man named Diotrephes, and he literally says he liked to put himself first. And the Holy Spirit tells John, write his name down and call him out for that. Yikes this fellow 2,000 years ago know that, you know, some preacher in West Hartford will be standing and calling out his name? <laughs> Boy, the Holy Spirit has a way, doesn't he? But that was the problem. He didn't obey this command. We continue to verse 11. We see the next set of, of commands. And really, this is echoes of Matthew 25, The echoes of the talents commands 3 4 and 5 are given and they really govern how believers relate and minister with one another you know there's some who'll work because things need to get done they're they're servant minded we looked at the gifts up here in the previous verses you know one who uh you know one who serves that's just kind of how they're bent they just they see something they they just do it they don't have to be asked there are others who will work when they have to or when they're specifically asked to. I mean, I'm thankful that the work gets done, right? But but I think what's he, what he's saying here, and don't be slothful in zeal, be fervent in spirit, serve the Lord. I mean, he's just like cutting through that and just saying, lift up your head, open your eyes, look around, see what, what needs to be done, how can I get involved? Don't wait to be asked. Go volunteer. You ever worked with somebody that, You know, if you stop, they sit down. And if you sit down, they lay down. And if you lay down, they go to sleep. Don't go to sleep. They might die. Right? And some people are like that. Don't. He says, fear slothfulness. Don't be slothful in zeal. Whatever is worth doing in the Lord's work is worth doing with enthusiasm. A lazy Christian is just a bad testimony. Jesus, as with all things, provides the greatest example, the perfect example. He says in John 9, 4, I must work the works of him that sent me while it is day. The night comes when no man can work. He says, yeah, I've got to do the job God sent me to do. In Ephesians 5, Paul exhorts the church at Ephesus, see then that you walk circumspectly, not as fools, but as wise, redeeming the time. Because the days are evil. You don't redeem the time by being slothful. Using the time wisely, buying it back to to put to God's use. Fervent in spirit is the fourth command. This is an interesting word that he used. Literally means to be hot, to glow with intensity, to to boil, to be zealous or diligent. It, it portrays it pertains to action. To be fervent in spirit talks about our attitude. So it's like how we look at what God has called us to do. Are we excited about it. Can we not just wait to get to it? Don't be slothful in what God's given you to do. In fact, be excited about it. Now, I know there are certain things that it's just like, oh, I've got to. That's our human nature. But turn that around and realize, hmm, why should I be excited about doing that? How is that a ministry to somebody else? How is that preferring one another? How is that showing honor to another? MacArthur said the idea here is not of being overheated to the point of boiling over out of control, but like a steam engine of having sufficient heat to produce the energy necessary to get the work done. To yet another church, Paul writes to the churches in Galatia in Galatians 6.9, let, let us not grow weary of our doing good, but in due season we will reap if we do not give up. Don't quit. You see, I I, I mean, all these themes, they're repeated all over the place. This wasn't just for Rome and we're like, I hope they got it. No, this is for us as much as it was for them. The fifth one, he says, faithfully serving the Lord, and faithfully is just really, I think, an understood implication. He just says, serve the Lord. No no end to it, just serve the Lord. It's really interesting. In Romans 12, Paul has used this word, serve or service, three times already, but they're all different Greek words. In verse one, he uses the word to worship about service it's the word latria in verse 7 he used the word we often associate with deacons diakonia it's the gift of ministry or serving to attend to the needs of someone or something verse 11 it's yet a different greek word "dulao." the attitude of a bond slave he sees the reason for his existence is to serve the master to do his master's will who is our master? The Lord. We don't serve out of fear. We don't serve out of bondage. We don't serve out of, you know, some kind of just, you know, duty. Imposed. We serve because we, we love it. The bond servant was one who willingly stayed in servitude. He could have gotten out, but he stayed. The lesson is that we ought to see our work for the Lord as part of our worship. We should be attentive to the needs of other believers. We should realize that God saved us and we should delight in serving Him by serving and preferring other believers. So, those things that are done for the Lord and the Lord's work to help brothers and sisters of Christ that nobody else knows, they come in and they look around and go, oh, wow, yeah, everything's straight and clean. Somebody did that because you didn't leave it like that. First of the week, I come back in here. It doesn't look like it does on Sunday morning, okay? Somebody comes in and straightens it all up. It's just like at home. It's a magic coffee table. Some of you get that. Paul saw himself as a bond slave. Romans 1, Philippians 1, Titus 1, he introduces himself. If you met Paul, if Paul showed up at church, you walk up to him like you always do, "Hey, I'm so and so, it's good to have you here." "Hey, I'm Paul, I'm a servant of Jesus Christ." That's how he greeted people. Every letter, "Hey, I'm Paul, I'm a bond servant of Jesus Christ." Oh, okay. <laughs> but why shouldn't we say that? Why why shouldn't that be our testimony? What a blessing, what a testimony it is. Matthew's gospel, he records Jesus speaking to the followers about the matter of serving, and 28 times Jesus uses this word. Matthew 20, verse 27, he says, whoever will be chief among you, again, talking to the disciples, dealing with this situation I referenced earlier from Luke 22, it's a parallel passage. Whoever will be chief among you, let him be your servant, your dulos. I mean, th- this is just, this is just what it gets down to. Like I said, I mean, this, this gets real pointed real fast. Verse 12, we see the next little group here. He says, rejoice in hope, be patient in tribulation, be constant in prayer. Thank God we've got all 10 of them. But boy, in the present day and the way we feel like life is so many times, could we just not just live off these three? What a different perspective it gives us if we would do it. This really takes us to where, as they say, the rubber meets the road. You know, we can get along, we can be encouraging, we can be kind when life is smooth, when life is easy. But what about when it's not? What about when it's just just hard I'm really just discouraged and I'm not sure how it's gonna work out and it just doesn't seem like it's gonna let up? And he says to that, he speaks into that and it's really kind of a hint back to chapter five because he addressed this back then. Rejoice in hope. That's all you have to say to Christians. Rejoice in hope. Why? Because the word hope to a Christian means something unique. The hope of what is to come. The hope of what is to come. The hope of what we know in our hearts is to come. And I got to tell you about halfway through the songs this morning. I got, I got a little bit of a struggle. So I'm thinking about through this this list and this wonderful progression that Pastor Josh put together, and again it was lifted right out of this this passage, but just a beautiful wedding of the songs with the uh, of the truth and the, the text and and everything else. and I mean not to be you know like really morbid or anything here um, and babe, just don't listen to this part. Um, but I thought to myself. That right there, that could be my, my funeral. I would just love that. If, if that's kind of, you know, how memorial service went. I mean, the Christian life, right on through, and we're going to finish, you know, with a, with a wonderful, our wonder, this wonderful new hymn we've just been learning. Our God will go before us. I mean, yep, he did, right on to heaven, and I'm right behind him. And this is a Christian life. Rejoice in hope. Hope is an essential, foundational part of the Christian life. It's to anticipate with confidence, a confident expectation. Barnes said it's the complex emotion of the desire for something combined with the expectation of receiving it. Yeah. You see that's what the Christian does. Boy, I I I am hoping for for heaven and and then right underneath that cuz and I know it's there. I know it's waiting. You know, unfortunately not every not every believer is going to be as encouraging to you as they should when you need it. That's why he tells us to to rejoice in hope. Sometimes we're gonna have to do that on our own. Hopefully a brother with the gift of exhortation or one with the gift of mercy comes alongside of us and sits down, puts their arm around us and go, hey, I'm gonna help you in this whole thing. (laughs) But, But it might not. But rejoice in hope. You know, from from where does the, the hope of a, a believer come? We don't have time to, to pull it all apart, but 1 Corinthians 15, I mean, that great resurrection chapter, right? How many times have I stood at the graveside of a believer and read verses 51 to 58? Why does that give such comfort? Why does that give such hope? Because there's promise. There's a promise of change. There's, there's a provision of comfort that comes alongside of it and, and then, Ultimately, there is that exhortation to all that that are left behind. Therefore, continue. This believer's journey is done, but yours is not. Continue. Rejoice in hope. Be patient in tribulation. I mean, in honesty, what's the worst that can happen to a believer? We go to heaven. Now, yes, the human side says, hold on, I'm not in a hurry. Yeah, I, I get all of that. But Paul Paul is writing, and again, like I said, the persecution is mounting. James had already been killed. John the Baptist had been beheaded. Others probably by this time had, in fact, been martyred. I mean, it was it was coming. Tribulation was coming. This is an interesting word, "lipsis." It literally means to put under pressure, to burden, to trouble. It's from the root word meaning to crowd or to narrow. Not many people like being in enclosed, tight places. Claustrophobia is a real thing. But that's the word. It means to when the pressure is on, they literally, they they would use this word to describe the process of squeezing olives in a press to, to extract the oil. Or grapes to extract the juice. The Romans had a farming implement called a tribulum. It was a tube with sharp rocks or pieces of metal kind of pounded into it, and they would roll it across the grain at threshing time to separate the chaff and the, and the meat of the grain. The farmer never took the tribulum into the, the, the pit over the grain to destroy the grain. He did it to release it from the chaff. They never put the olives or the grapes in the press to destroy the crop. No, it was meant to release what really was the crop. Be patient in tribulation because God is trying to release out of you what is for his glory. And you're good. So don't run away from it. Don't come around the corner and see the press and go, whoa, and run the other way. Be patient. That's a beautiful word, Apollomony. Cheerful or hopeful endurance. You stay put right there where God has Okay, Lord, until you're done with me. Trials, tribulation, testing, they're part of a believer's life. But they're also part of the work that God is doing to draw you closer to Him, to make you conform to His image. It's not defeatism. It's not just, oh, well, this is the way it goes. Does not Eeyore Christianity. There's a purpose. We rejoice in hope. We're patient in tribulation. We are to be constant in prayer, committed to it. We persevere in it. I don't think there's any question that one of the reasons that God allows us to go through trials, it is to drive us to himself. Again, MacArthur said, devoted, steadfast prayer should be as continual a part of a Christian's spiritual life as breathing is a part of his physical life. We use this a lot just kind of in our colloquial Christianity, don't we? I mean, we did it this morning. We got a notification yesterday that John Hill is having an emergency appendectomy scheduled for this morning, and I mean... People from literally around the globe are sending the message, we'll be praying for you, we'll be praying for you. Why do we do that? It's more than, well, I mean, that's just what we do as Christians. I mean, why do we do that? Because it means something. What does it mean when a believer says, I prayed for you this week, or I'll be praying for you this week? Literally, your name is going to be spoken in the throne room of heaven before God. And he'll hear it. He'll hear it. Moody said every work of God can be traced to some kneeling form. The Bible tells us, Jesus exhorted us to pray. Matthew 7, that ask, seek, not knock passage. The Bible tells us that God hears and he acts on that. One of my favorite passages that illustrate it is in Daniel chapter 10. In Daniel 10, verses 12 and 13, Gabriel comes to Daniel and he tells him, God heard you 21 days ago when you prayed for wisdom. I have been fighting through the demons for 21 days to get get here. But the moment you prayed it, God heard it and dispatched me. It's in Daniel 10. But it's taken me three weeks to get here. Is there any reason why? Paul doesn't say, be constant in prayer. I mean, literally it went from Daniel's lips to God's ears, and God acted. But Gabriel had to fight. His way to get the answer. there. It's an awesome thought. Quickly, his last two commands. I mean... They seem rather basic. Some would even say they're just assumed, but we can't do that because it's our fleshly nature. And and so Paul writes them down. He says, contribute to the needs of the saints and seek to show hospitality. Literally that flow of the supernatural life, what the Holy Spirit is doing is, is outward, not inward. And as we meet the needs of our fellow believers, it's more than meeting our own. Contribute to the needs of the saints. The word there is is koinoneo, which is a very similar word to the word that gets translated fellowship of koinoneo. It's to share, to share with. As believers, we should see ourselves as in a partnership. We stand ready to share in, to meet the needs of others as as they become aware. Paul wrote to Timothy in 1 Timothy 6 to exhort those who who have material possessions. They are charged to, to then use those to meet the needs of others. We don't have to teach the concept of ownership to our children, right? But we do have to teach them the truth of stewardship. Ownership they've got in a word. Mine. Mine. You never had to teach that to your children. You don't have to teach that in, you know, kindergarten teachers don't have to start, you know, okay, we're going to learn three words today. No, they, they come ready with that one. It's Baked in. We don't have to teach ownership, but we do have to teach stewardship. The Bible gives us about 500 verses on prayer, about 500 verses on the subject of our faith, more than 2,000 verses on the subject of money and possessions. And seek to show hospitality. Literally pursuing the love of strangers. The writer of Hebrews says again, Hebrews 13, "Be be not forgetful to entertain strangers, for thereby some have entertained angels unawares. Jesus also talked about it, Luke 14. He says, when you give a dinner, don't invite all the dignitaries. Don't invite the people that then will have to reciprocate the invitation and you'll get to see what their house looks like. Invite the poor, the crippled, the lame, the blind. Peter picks up on this theme as well in his letter to the early church. And he says, use hospitality one to another without grudging in 1 Peter 4, 9. Literally, we should look upon our hospitality as a happy privilege, not a drudging duty. There they are, 10 commands, the Christian and the family, the family of God. My, if we would do these, my, if we would apply these to our hearts, to our lives, to how we live, even right here at this time and in this place in these days. I thought as we closed here this morning, I mean, this gives a great opportunity for us. I just want to remind us, if you're a member of Farmington Avenue Baptist Church or if you're interested in becoming a member there's bylaws. We'll furnish that. You can you can read it, and it, you know everybody's like, okay, let's flip to the interesting stuff. You know, how do they call a pastor, and how do they vote on stuff, and whatever. Do you know what Article One is like? The name and, and stuff. You know what Article Three is? It's the covenant. I think just about every set of church bylaws has one. It's it's a thing. Unfortunately, it is rarely read. It is often overlooked. And so I'm going to read it for you this morning. Our covenant says this, Having been led, as we believe, by the Spirit of God to receive the Lord Jesus Christ as our Savior, and on the profession of our faith, having been baptized in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, we do now, in the presence of God and this assembly, most solemnly and joyfully enter into covenant with one another as one body in Christ. We engage, therefore, to strive for the advancement of Farmington Avenue Baptist Church in grace, knowledge, and holiness, to promote its spirituality and well-being, to maintain the unity of the spirit in the bond of peace, to sustain its worship, ordinances, and doctrines, and to contribute cheerfully and liberally as God moves in our hearts to the financial support of the ministries of the church. We further engage as the Holy Spirit directs us to walk together in brotherly love, to exercise Christian care and watchfulness over one another, to rejoice with those who rejoice and weep with those who weep, to be slow to take offense, but always ready for reconciliation, to consider one another, to provoke unto love and good works, and to forsake not the assembling. Of ourselves together. That is our covenant. It's lifted right out of Ephesians and 2 Corinthians and Hebrews and Romans. That's what, as a local body, we covenant to do with and for one another by God's grace and for God's glory. If we take these 10 commands, And if we obey them, they will help us to rightly relate to our brothers and sisters in Christ, and we will put our faith on display. May it be so. Father, thank you for the truth of your word, the clarity of it even the simplicity of it. But Father, we confess that it's not always simple to then apply to our lives. We admit with all humility that we need the Holy Spirit's help to take these truths, apply them to our lives, to be doers and not just hearers. Father, help us. May this local body be a place where these things are lived out. Father, may the gifts that you have given be put into practice. May these commands be followed. Not for our glory, but for yours and yours alone. Father, help us. Give us grace. May we live in obedience to your word. May we worship and serve for your glory.